We have been in a series on the book of Psalms. Uh, this is the longest book of the Bible, and so we are going to each year uh, do a small section of the Psalms. Uh, that way we can continue to work through the book uh, year by year. We have come to Psalm 5, if you turn there in your Bibles. Uh, the Psalms are worship that instruct. The Psalms were written to be sung corporately. It was the songbook of the people of Israel. Uh, in the Psalms, we see examples of something we speak about a lot, which is preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God to ourselves. We see in the Psalm, uh, the writers bringing forth their burdens and concerns and then declaring the truths of God to themselves as encouragement. It is a process that all of us need to carry out. In this particular psalm, uh, we are told how God looks at the lives of the righteous and the unrighteous. It reminds us once again, as we saw last week in Psalm 4, that God is the greatest reality that we will face. Uh, Psalm 5 has five stanzas or five sections to it. And as we go through, we'll see that each section is alternating between declarations about the righteous and the unrighteous. Each New stanza is a contrast to the one before, and I'll try to lay that out so you can see the structure clearly. Uh, and the, the key truth within each of these five stanzas is found in the, the second phrase. And uh, as that comes up on the screen, as we read through, I've, I've had the, that phrase underlined. So at the beginning of each new section, you immediately will see what is the major thought and point of it. So Let's begin reading Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open way. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, 
that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to your word asking for your grace that you would bring clear understanding of your truth and how it should intersect with our lives. Help us to respond to your truth in the appropriate ways. May we know what they are, that your spirit would prod our hearts and that we would rejoice in all of your truth. It would fill our lives, that our lives might be pleasing to you. We ask for your help in all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first stanza or section is verses 1 to 3. Uh, and in this stanza, we see that God's people should be confident as we call upon him. Verse 1, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. We live in a world where our calling upon God often includes groaning. Uh, bodies have pain. Relationships have conflict. Plans have obstacles. Life has chaos. But through Christ, we, we gather all of these concerns and burdens and we bring them to Him with a confident heart. Verse 2 says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Notice how he personalizes his address to God. There is one true God, and that God, the psalmist says, is, is my God. Jesus emphasized this truth, encouraged us in it. Uh, in John chapter 20, verse 17, it is after he has been raised from the dead and he is about to ascend into heaven. And Jesus says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Our Lord Jesus is encouraging us to realize that our relationship to God is as His was. That we are to see our Heavenly Father as our Father. He is our God. We are bringing our requests not to a God out there or even to the God overall. We're bringing our needs to our God, my God. It is in a very personal way we come with all of our needs. It is Christ who enables us to come to him this way. And How does he do that? How does Christ make our ability to come to God so personalized? It is because of what he has removed that was between us and God. The Bible says that it is our sin that has separated us from God. The Bible over and over from the very beginning to the end declares how God must address and judge all sin. 
And we are all sinners. We all have this obstacle, and the only response God can have against us is that He must deal with the sin that is in us. When Christ, who is God in flesh, went to the cross, He took the guilt of our sin upon Himself. And then in His death, He paid in full the punishment, the debt required for sin. Those who come to Christ and trust in Him, that which was between us and God is gone forever. It was placed on Christ. He paid the debt in full. And so the obstacle, the separation has been removed. And God now doesn't address us as someone whose sin He must judge, but as someone who has been forgiven. And now we enter a relationship as His children. Christ changes the way we come to God as no one else can or has because Christ and He alone has dealt with our sin. And so our confidence as we come to God is not in our performance, it's in Christ's performance. When we come to pray, our confidence isn't thinking, how faithful, how good have I been over the last couple of days? Is, is God going to be happy to hear from me? Our confidence is in what Christ has done. It's not that we are now good enough and obedient enough that God will finally hear. It is that Christ has fully taken care of our sin problem. And those who trust in Him, we've been brought into an adopted, loving relationship with God. And so we freely come, whatever the burden, even with sin issues, when we come before God, we've fallen into sin and we're ashamed and we even put off coming to Him and repenting because we feel our shame and we're embarrassed. We think how God must be upset with us. But especially in those times, it's not our performance, it's what Christ has done. And so God's response is always, come quickly to receive the cleansing of your heart and to experience the fact that I love you and my commitment to you hasn't changed. Christ turns the God of all into our God. And our God is, as the psalmist tells us, the only true king. He is my God, my king. He is the ruler over everything, and he has final say over everything. And so our confidence to come to God is in the greatness of his name. Our confidence is in the fact that Christ has removed our guilt, and now we come freely, and because our God rules over everything, everything we face and struggle with. Now, all of this is basic, fundamental Christianity. And if we believe these things, then God should regularly hear from us. As the psalmist says in verse 3, uh, that I come in the morning. You will hear from me each morning. It is the declaration of my days begin with the approach to you. The 
God should hear from us if he really is our God. And something happens every time we pray. Every time we come to God, something happens because God is already engaged with us. We are never getting God's attention. We are never convincing him that our needs are important or that he should be responding. All of that comes from the heart of God, which is already great toward us. We don't convince God to care about our coming and our prayers. It is his love and commitment to us that is already there. So he is always waiting for us. You have never prayed and gotten God's attention. He was already there, attentive, waiting for you. We do not love better than God. So consider what takes place in your heart when you see someone you deeply love. You see your spouse who maybe has been away for a couple of days, or you, you see your children who are away at school, or you see your grandchild, and your heart leaps in love and affection for them. You're so glad to have them with you. We do not love anyone more than God loves us. Our hearts do not rejoice more fully for those we love than God's heart rejoices over us. Sometimes we're afraid to think of how much, how intensely God loves us. But that is his character. It is the greatness and the perfection of his love. And that is why every time we come to God, his heart is already full toward us. As we saw last week in Psalm 4, his, his face is turned toward us. And so in Christ, every prayer is heard and received. Every prayer is heard and received. And there's much we don't understand about how and why God responds the way he does. But this we can be sure of. He always hears. He's always engaged with us. Something happens every time we come to God because we are his beloved children and he's committed to us. The second stanza, the second section that is a contrast to this. God's people, we are confident as we come in prayer, but then in verses 5 to 6, he gives a contrast. Now he's talking about the unrighteous. and lets us know that God does not accept those who are pursuing sin. Verse 4, 
For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. God hates sin. Every occurrence of sin, any measure of sin, every form of sin, God hates sin. The language here is strong and emphatic. Why does God hate sin so much? Well, the first reason is because God understands sin. He knows the nature of sin, what sin does. He knows what's contained in sin. That sin is always carrying deception. That sin always corrupts. That the end of sin is always something destructive. That all sorrow and burden, all pain and brokenness that has ever been experienced in this world is directly a result of the presence of sin. And God sees what sin has done in this world. He has seen what it has done in your own soul. God hates sin because he sees it clearly for what it is and what it does. God also hates sin because sin hates God. Sin is, by definition, a rebellion against God. Sin is not people breaking some composed list of rules. Sin is to push away the ways and truths of God and to go our own way. That's how sin began. The fall of Satan and the angels that followed after him came from his desire to set himself to be equal with God. The first sin in this earth, Adam and Eve, it was the desire to be as wise as God. Sin is always, as we'll see in this passage, a rebellion against God. It attempts to overrule him. Sin always wants God to be pushed out of the way. It wants God to move out of the way so that we can pursue what we want. So God hates sin because he sees it clearly for what it is and because sin is always an attack against him. Sin hates him. And so he cannot allow sin in any degree or form to dwell in his kingdom. There will be no sin in the eternal kingdom of Christ. The language of the psalmist is unyielding in this. Verses 5 and 6, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. God will destroy sin. He can't let it continue because of what it does. 
we see the seriousness of God against sin, uh, not only in the language of the psalm and hundreds of other places in Scripture, we also more than anywhere see the intensity of God's response to sin in the drastic measures that he took to remove sin. That the eternal God became flesh. God joined himself to humanity forever. And that Christ, the Son of God, took upon his pure heart and life all the filth of our guilt. And the Bible says he became sin. He became guilty as though he had performed all of those vile things. And God in his commitment that he must deal with sin did not hesitate to pour out his wrath and judgment on his own son when he bore our sin. That is how much God hates sin. What he was willing to do, what he had to do to deliver us from the consequence of sin. If God did not hesitate to bring his wrath against his son when he bore our guilt, we must know God will not hesitate to bring his wrath against those who remain in their guilt. God is committed to his holiness. And if you have heard, certainly out in the culture, that God is love and he would never do that, and you've allowed yourself to think, okay, you know, God is love, He's not going to be that serious with sin. And, and perhaps you've heard that horrendous lie come even into the church where you've heard pastors say things similar. It is not what men say. It is what the Word of God declares. And if you have allowed yourself to be anesthetized, some in thinking that God will not be that serious with your sin, then see here what the psalmist says. This is God's heart, not against you. It is God's heart to speak to you that we might see that God must deal seriously with sin, but in his grace he has given his son so that we don't need to fear it, that our guilt can be removed. This is not something at you. This is truth for you, to free you, to deliver you, that this might be something for which you never need to fear, for by grace God has set you free because Christ has paid fully and forever the price of our sin and it is given to whoever would believe, whoever would come, whoever asks. Not who deserves, not who performs, who asks. You 
can ask in this moment. And all of it will be fully true for you right now. The third stanza, again in contrast to the one before it. We started with God's people being confident to call upon Him, and then in the second stanza, but God will not accept those who pursue sin. And now in the third stanza, the contrast is, but the righteous, the righteous are welcome in the presence of God. Verse 7, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love, meaning your love that stays, doesn't leave, doesn't change. I, through your steadfast love and its abundance, will enter your house. We can come. Because God's goal through the cross was far more than to save us. It was to bring us to himself. Think of when you see news about a, an oil spill uh, in the ocean or in a lake, and you see all the volunteers coming, and they're gathering all the birds you see are covered with thick black oil that would kill them. And the, the workers are washing them off, cleaning them of the oil, and then setting them back into the wild where they can live freely. That is not what God does. That is not an accurate picture of the gospel, what Christ does. Yes, He takes us out of our danger. He cleanses us of sin, but He doesn't then just send us back to live our lives free again. He cleanses us. He rescues us so that we may now live with Him. It is astounding. The eternal God wants to spend his eternity with you. And that delights his heart to think of it. His heart rejoices that his eternity can have us in it. That's what he saves us for. Not to be straightened out and back life as we live it. It is to find life with him. God wants our presence so that we can experience his love. So we can experience forever the abundance of his steadfast love. And so the door is wide open, the table has been set, and his people have been invited to come and share life with him. It's not that we go through life knowing now he's out there. It's that we now go through life with him every morning, coming to share life because the table set in the invitation is for us to be with him. He wants us to know him. That's what love always does. Love desires the object of its love to be with them. 
Something as simple as if you love pie, you want to have pie in front of you. How much more is it with people? Those that you love, you want them with you. You want to enjoy life with them. You're glad for things that may be happening in their life far away. You, you can rejoice for what is happening, but you would far more have that happen with you, that you can be part of it. And that's what God wants. I was about to say, if you struggle with time with God, it's more accurate when. When. You struggle in time with God. And particularly if you know you've never developed any consistent habit, pattern of life of spending time with God. You know you should, you want to, maybe you have at times, but you have to admit it, it's not a habit of your life. I would encourage you to, to think of it in terms of Think of prayer, even of Bible reading. Think of it as, I'm going to spend a few minutes, even if it's just three minutes, five minutes in the morning before I, I go into the day, I'm just going to spend a few minutes with God. Don't think of it, I've got all these things I should pray for. It's, I'm going to spend a little bit of time with God and just talk to Him about this day that you have. Talk to him about today and what's going to be taking place and your need for him and that you do love him and you want him to help you. Let it start there and see how it continues to grow and expand. Nothing has benefited me more in my spiritual growth, in the condition of my heart than to develop consistently time with God and particularly seeing it as time with Him to worship Him and to think about Him, to be in the presence of God. Nothing has benefited me more than developing that habit. You will be thankful In this third stanza, we see that we are not only welcome, but we see the character of those who are righteous. We see three things about them. The first is they will pursue God. That's their heart. Any heart that doesn't desire God is an unchanged heart. If there's no desire at all, then there's not love. And if there's not any love for God, then your heart hasn't been changed by Him. It doesn't matter what you say you've, you've said in a prayer, or how long you've been going to church, or what you believe. If you have no desire to pursue God and His truth and His person, then your heart is 
unchanged. It is not a regenerated heart. It is not a heart born again. For all who are in Christ, there is some measure of love. There must be some desire for him. And if you think you're a Christian and there's no desire to know God better, then you, you need to consider whether or not you're his, what commitment you've made. We have to have some desire for him if we love him. The second characteristic of those who are righteous is that they will submit to the reign of God. He is king to us. We come to him as God and king, as ruler. When we're invited to receive the gospel of Christ and have forgiveness come, we are called to him as our Savior and Lord. Because that's what he is. He is the only Savior and he is the only true Lord. The invitation is to come to him in all that he is. And to come just as Savior and not submit as Lord is to deny him. It is to reject the reality that he is Lord. So if he is not king over our life, we are rejecting a fundamental quality of who he is. If we truly turned our heart to him, that must involve submitting to him. Verse 7, I will bow down. If we don't bow down, then we're not really his. We just want him to do something good for us, take away my sin, but I'm still going to stand and rule over my own life. And that is not biblical salvation. That's not receiving the gospel of Christ. A third characteristic of the righteous is to follow the ways of God. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. If we are in Christ, we want to embrace all that God is. We want to know the truth. We want to know God's heart. We want to be pleasing. We want to be following. We want to be involved in what he is doing. We want to be following him. We want our decisions to reflect him. We want to be followers of our Lord. Now, Christians will struggle with all of these things. We will struggle with desire and pursuit. We will struggle with submission. We'll struggle with following. Every believer will struggle with those things. But if they're completely absent... Then again, we have to question whether or not we are a believer. What is it that we're believing if we're not pursuing, following, loving? We're believing something that's not true. We're, we're not believing Him. The fourth stanza, again, in contrast to the one before it. In the third stanza, we are seeing that the righteous are welcome in God's presence. But in the fourth, the unrighteous have no real hope. 
verse 9, there is no truth in their mouth. Their, their innermost self is destruction. That's their life. That's where their life is headed. That is the result that is coming. It is destruction. There is no hope without Christ because no one else has died for sin. No one else is the only king who rules over the only kingdom that will stand. There is no hope without Christ. And those who have not trusted in him, they then remain in their guilt. They remain as we all are, as sinners. And, but nothing has changed for them. They stay as sinners. And so the, the guilt, the sin in their life, then pervades everything they do, and everything's touched with sin. The Bible says even when we do good things without Christ, sin is mixed in it, and it's not pleasing to God. Now, people will admit that they've sinned, but they have a real hard time saying, yes, I am a sinner. I mean, everyone knows they've done things wrong, but to say, I am by identity a sinner is something we recoil from, but it is the reality. We are hopeless beyond our ability to save, and we do need to be saved. We need to see that we are sinners. It's not a matter of who sinned more or less or how I compare to others. It is, do we have sin in our life and God must judge sin? And our sin is never isolated. It's never controlled. It makes sin, makes sinners of us all and is ruinous. And so for those who are in Christ, there's nothing to envy in the lives of those who don't know Christ. Nothing to envy. It doesn't matter how big and beautiful their house is or how lavish their vacations or how much fame they have or their positions. There is nothing to envy in the life of those without Christ because their life is destruction unless they bow to him unless they are saved. And we see the, the main characteristic of unrighteousness, which helps us understand again God's response to it, it is rebellion. That's how verse 10 ends. For they have rebelled against you. God's judgment is not for the worst people. God's judgment is for those who rebel against him. And so our great need is not to be made better people, it's to be rescued from our rebellion. It's that we would no longer be in that condition of rebellion, but that we would be in the standing of being his children, who still struggle and fall, but our standing has changed. Our heart has changed, and the guilt has been removed. And that brings us to the last stanza. We started out with verses 1 to 3, that God's people should be confident to call upon him. And then we saw in verses 4 to 6 that God will not accept those who pursue sin. But in contrast to that, the righteous, they are welcome in God's presence. 
In contrast to that, however, the unrighteous, there is no hope. And then we see in closing, but the righteous should be people of joy. Verses 11 and 12, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And that those who love your name may exult in you. The world is a bruising place, but God himself is our refuge. It's not just that God will give us things to do. It is the person of God going to him. He is our refuge. This psalm has been showing us the contrast between the lives of the righteous and the unrighteous. It's been showing us the contrast between the hopes of the righteous and the unrighteous. They are very different. And just as the unrighteous, as we just saw, have no hope because there is no hope without Christ, for those who have trusted in Him, our hope cannot be extinguished. Our hope cannot be lost. It is a theological impossibility for a true Christian to be hopeless, ever. We cannot be hopeless. We may not see hope. We may not be looking at it, understanding it. We may not feel it. But if you are in Christ, you cannot be hopeless because you are his forever. You are saved forever. You will be with him forever. You will be made perfect forever. He does love you with all of his being forever. A Christian cannot ever be hopeless. Impossible. And so with that in mind, joy and rejoicing are the appropriate responses. That's what the psalmist is bringing us to. With all of this being understood, there is an appropriate perspective of life even when it's hard, even when it's painful, to rejoice because we have hope, because this is true. Because nothing changes this which is true. Verse 11, God's protection is over us. Verse 12, his shield does cover us. Now what can confuse us at times is that we still feel attacks. And that's because we live in a rebellious world that's pervaded with sin. And you cannot be in this world without being impacted with it, without being touched by it. We will be attacked. However, there is the shield. What is the shield then if it doesn't keep us from hurt or attack? It's the shield of God's sovereignty and of his goodness. So that everything that does touch us, touches us through the sovereignty of God. He is in control of that. And it covers us with his goodness that by the honor of God's name, he guarantees that everything that touches us will end up for our eternal good. The word of God declares it. So this world will be bruising. It will be difficult. But we are covered with the sovereignty, the authority, control of God, and the goodness of God. 
So when verse 12 declares that God blesses us, that's not some vague concept that we can say, someone sneezes, God bless you. Without any thought, well, what in the world does that mean? We speak to each other about blessing or say we've been blessed or I'm blessed, sometimes without any attachment of anything to that. Well, how, why? Being blessed is a biblical reality, but it's not a vague one. The blessings of God are concrete, specific, and personal. And we have a responsibility to learn more about them, to understand what does it mean that we are blessed. That's what the Word of God is for, that we might see what is true. And the more we see clearly of what it means to be blessed, the more our hearts can rejoice even when life is difficult. For we see how much greater blessing is than difficulty. And some of you have gone through or are in severe difficulty. Some of you have suffered intense pain and sorrow. And yet the grace must be so much greater than that sorrow that it will erase it from our hearts and minds. So great will be the blessing, the grace, the goodness of God. So let's bring this to a conclusion. How do we respond? How is this psalm seeking to impact us? We need to carefully consider what our heart embraces. Do we embrace the truth and the person of God or something else? Do we embrace our own reality, our own desires, our own lordship, or do we embrace God? And know if you embrace anything else, you are embracing sin and rebellion. And it is disastrous, we are shown here, to ignore or even to water down the truth of God concerning life and eternity. We can't afford to water it down. We must see it clearly. For to ignore it is disastrous. It is ruin. But to receive it, to bow before it, is wondrous, and it is eternal. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you thankful for what Christ has made possible, what he has done, and that all of these hopes rest in him that we don't have to hold any of these things up. We don't have to make them true. You have made them true. Help us to embrace you with a full heart and to see what that means. And together we ask for anyone here who has never understood or received you as Savior and Lord, that you would fill their thoughts with the clarity of it. Give them a heart for it. We ask that 
everyone in this room now would have the truth of Christ, would be saved and belong to you. Help us all in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.